Coming up on golf today, John Rahm announcing to the golf world, I am Rombo, new world number one. After holding off Max Homa at Riviera, Rahm with a new PGA Tour career high, three wins in a single season. We're just in February. Can Rahm rewrite recent history with the signature season? Over on the Ladies European Tour, Lydia Ko still on fire. Three wins for last four worldwide starts, capturing the high dollar Aramco Saudi Ladies International for the second time in the last three years. Eamon Lynch on the scrutiny of the top players in the women's game should face after teeing it up in Saudi Arabia. Plus, our Tiger takeaways from his return to the PGA Tour. Did we see enough to think Tiger can seriously contend for win number 83 later this year, or is this the new normal? For Tiger going forward. That's all coming up on Golf Today, right now. Golf Today. What a week it was at the Genesis Invitational for John Rahm, the Spaniard carding that final round 69 to beat Max Homa by two. And with the win, Rahm returning to the top spot in the official World Golf Ranking. Hey there, welcome inside our Golf Channel studios for a two-hour edition of Golf Today. I'm George Sabarikas sitting alongside Golf Week's Eamon Lynch. So much going on in the golf world over the weekend. The end of the PGA Tour's West Coast Swing. Back-to-back -back designated events. Two weeks in a row, we spin the roulette wheel, and we have a new world number one who just won their previous start. Goes from Scotty Scheffler to John Rahm. The West Coast Swing, I think, overall was pretty electric. And the finish in L.A. was pretty electric, for sure. I mean, didn't it have everything you'd want in a Hollywood epic? You know, a lot of drama, a little bit of suspense, some controversy along the way. There's a, a few comedic touches as well with balls ending up in hoodies and, and boxes of hats. But eventually you had box office come out on top at the end because there's no bigger box office right now than John Rahm. The final leaderboard. It's a two-shot victory for Rahm. Patrick Cantley solo third. Good to see Will Zalatoris, who'd been battling some back and, and other injuries. You see that final round, 64, solo fourth. After the victory, John Rahm chatting with our Kira K. Dixon. John Rahm, the 2023 champion here at the Genesis Invitational. John, you're now the proud owner of three wins on the PGA Tour this season, and it's only February. What did it take to get this done? <laughs> a lot, a lot. Uh, obviously, it started really, really well. Um, first two holes, I played amazing. Uh, made a good birdie and gave myself a chance on two, and then, you know, a bit of a hiccup on three, but still battle well. I mean, played five, six, four great holes, had birdie chance in all of them, and then, well, kind of kicked it into gear on seven, eight, nine. Too bad on 10 through 13, things got a little ugly, right? Um, Bail out on 10, ended up with the bogey, which is very easy to do on that hole. 12 uh, was, what I would say, the only really mistake of the day. Um, just those two putts, none of them were good. It's the only, you know, the only two bad putts I've hit all week. Uh, and then took advantage of a good break on 13, and, and the rest I would say is history, right? Uh, standing on 13 tee, one back was not something I expected after the front nine, but to to come back from the adversity and, and finish those holes two under par, mm -hmm. especially birdie in the par threes, which is kind of not the holes that I expected to birdie, is uh, it's so gratifying. It's been an incredible week, and to finish it off this way is, is mm -hmm. special. You had quite the battle with Max, and then you were able to really take control of it down that closing stretch. Describe what your mental game was like in that stretch of golf. 
Well, it was important to, for people that don't really think about this too much, it was important to start teeing off before him. Um, you know, he made that mistake on 13 and I capitalized from, from a good break. And from then on, I just keep making good swings in front of him, right? If I keep applying the pressure, it's going to make the day a little bit more difficult for him. And that's what I did. Uh, kind of forced him to go out the pin on 16, forced him to have to finesse that bunker shot a little bit more on 17 than he probably wanted to, right? And when I hit that tee shot on 18, on the fairway, kind of put a little bit more pressure on him. So I was glad to be able to put myself on that situation coming down the stretch and take advantage of it. But I mean, what to say about Max has had a heck of a year. Got the best of me and Tori. We battled it out today, and I'm sure this would be one of many, many battles to come. And I'm just happy I ended up on top today. You're the first Spaniard to win this event. Your whole family is here. Oh, wow. You're, this is an iconic venue. <laughs> and to top it all off, it's Tiger's event. What does this one mean to you? You know, if I would say this is a golf course where Spanish players would be good, I would be this one. Good iron play, good short game, good putters. You know, the three big names that come to mind, I would think this would be a really good place for them. And you don't have to necessarily be the straightest of the tee. Uh, but to be the first is, is quite unique. It's quite unique. Um, there's a lot of history in this golf course. There's a lot of history and legacy in these grounds. And the fact that Tiger chose this event to be the one he wanted to host after many other options is, mm -hmm. I think, explains to the legacy, right? Uh, it's a, it's a tribute to what it is, and it's a big event for all of us players to win just because it's an honor. I've been able to win the Memorial by Jack and being able to win Tiger's event, the two greatest players in the history of the game, is, is quite an accomplishment in my mind. So, you know, I'm going to cherish this one a lot. Congratulations. Go get that trophy from Tiger. Thank you. John Rahm's last nine worldwide starts, he has been absolutely in fuego. You see he has ripped off now five wins in that time. His worst finish anywhere, the Hero World Challenge was T8. Worst finish on the PGA Tour this season, Farmers Insurance Open, when he had a chance to win going into Sunday at Torrey Pines. How impressive is it that your mediocrity was a T7, George? What does that say about the rest of them, what they've got to worry about this year? Because he now looks like a heavyweight swaggering into the ring. He's a physically intimidating presence on the PGA Tour. Now, I saw him early in the week walking around the clubhouse at Riviera. You know when John Rahm's on the move. It's kind of the bull is coming. What do you make of the evolution of John Rahm's game to where he's at now and what he's been balancing with his family outside the ropes, with the John Rahm we're seeing inside the ropes. This week was a fairly revealing week because John Rahm won without the weapon that has defined him for most of this season, which is his driver. He was only 63rd in driving accuracy out there, which is almost, you know, back end of the field among yeah. those who actually made the cut. He only hit 23 of 56 fairways, but the flip side of that is he hit 51 of the 72 greens. He led the field in strokes gained approach. He gained 11.9 strokes on the field with his approach play at Riviera. He then gained another four and a half strokes with a putter. That's a recipe that's probably going to win almost anywhere. But to me, it was really interesting how some comments he made afterwards about life outside the ropes and how that impacts inside the ropes. Let's take a listen to what he said. It's so much joy that comes from being with him and from him just having fun that makes an everyday life so much easier for, at least for somebody like me, ever since they came along, uh, you know, going home after a golf tournament in a golf round is, is a lot easier just because of things like that. I mean, it's playing with his drugs, I'm feeding them, we're doing this, doing that, you know, we shower together. Uh, 
put him down, just all those moments where he's smiling and so happy is is so heartwarming that what happens in the golf course kind of seems, it's very minimized, right? It's not nearly as satisfying as that is. That's a guy who seems to have a, a perfect balance going on right now. And I don't think you can underestimate, George, the value of not spending your evenings ruminating on what went right or what went wrong during the day on the golf course. And the same applies to Max Homa, who seems to have found a certain level of family balance as well as a new father. You can make the same argument over the last couple of years with Rory McIlroy as well, that there is value in being distracted away from the day-to-day -day grind of golf in the evening so that you can basically limit that focus to that period of time inside the rope so it doesn't really take over the rest of your life. Yeah, to have some separation. Otherwise, the golf course just becomes an extension of your day-to-day -day life and then it's fully intertwined and you don't have an identity that's separate from what you experience as John Rahm, the PGA Tour pro. And it seems like he, he's in such a happy and healthy place. That's why his golf game is shining. Uh, this past week, I was on the call for marquee groups for part of PGA Tour Live's uh, presentation on ESPN Plus for the Genesis Invitational. And you can tell John Rahm is becoming that guy. Where you see that name, Rahm, on the first page of the leaderboard, he's a guy who's going to take a run. Or even if he's one of the chasers, you know what John Rahm is capable of. And to quote Ric Flair, in order to beat the man, you have to be the man. So John Rahm on Friday, he was one over on his round, five back of the leader, Max Homa. Um, here's what I thought I would see down the stretch from Rahm based on his body language to that point, and then what unfolded. You ready for a bold prediction, Michael? Give it to me. John Rahm makes this. He's going to go on a run in these last six holes and will be in the final group going into the weekend. Whoa. There's a start. Rahm to six under. So Rom went five under those next five holes, had that eagle, banked it off. The stands was in the final group with Max Homa. That was the showdown everyone wanted to see. Those two guys had two wins on the season, the PGA Tour, the only two players that had multiple wins on the PGA Tour. John Rom now has three. So the forecast going forward, for him to join rarefied air would be to get to that five-win plateau on the PGA Tour. Doesn't happen that often, unless you're Tiger Woods, which is just unfair. We're going back to 1994. Tiger Woods did that 10 times in his career. Some of the other names who have done it just once. Nick Price in 1994. VJ Singh had that monster nine-win season. Jordan Spieth, Jason Day did it in the same year, back in 2015. Justin Thomas, the most recent in 2016-17. Rama already has three wins we're just heading to Florida I think this is the year John Rahm gets to five plus wins and a major and puts his stamp down as I am the best player in the men's game right now and the thing is we don't know how often that's going to happen a lot of these players we see it happen once we think it could happen multiple times Phil Mickelson never did it Roy McIlroy has never done it for just PGA Tour events. So this could be John Rahm's signature season, and we're in the middle of it right now. And you really have to wonder where the ceiling is for a John Rahm when he's playing so dominantly right now. When he puts himself in the mix, he's not backing off anywhere. Sometimes it goes his way and he gets a break. Sometimes it doesn't. But John Rahm is consistently, as we just saw from his last nine 
worldwide results. He's in the mix every single time. And what he brings to the mix now that earlier in his career he didn't is the intimidation value because he is a proven winner, more so than anyone else on the PGA Tour or in the world of golf this year. So that makes other guys get a little bit wobblier. So maybe those wins start to come a little bit easier when the, the competition starts to realize that you ain't going anywhere on Sunday afternoon. And the analytics had always been John Rahm is the most well-rounded player in the men's game that we're seeing numbers that just show that he is head and shoulders above the rest of the field. But we didn't see the wins to back that up. Now we're seeing wins in bunches and he's world number one. And let's not forget that the last three weeks we've had three different world number ones. So there are probably a couple of guys out there who have something to say about the idea that John Rahm is the undisputed heavyweight champ. And that's what's the beauty of where we are right now in the men's game. Will we continue to see this revolving door or will John Rahm be the one who's able to carry this beyond one, two, maybe three weeks? As we're going to take a look at the Comcast Business Tour top ten. The reason this is so important you date back to 2009, every player who's in the Comcast Business Tour Top 10 has had a tee time at Eastlake. So if you finish in the Top 10, odds are you're going to make it to the Tour Championship. John Rahm, number one. Max Homa, number two. Keegan Bradley is number three. And how about the season so far for Seamus Power, who is currently fourth? Well, he didn't win at the weekend, but Tiger Woods got at least as much attention as the guy who did. We're going to have our takeaways on the week that was for the GOAT. Coming up next. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters. Both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Uh, Tiger finishing his first PGA Tour event since the Zozo Championship back in 2020. It had been some time since Tiger played a non-major. You see 69-74, then on the weekend 67-73. Two rounds in the 60s, but wasn't able to string together any momentum consecutive days. After his performance, Tiger Woods talking with Kira K. Dixon on how he fared over the course of the week. Tiger Woods finishes up the week at one under. Pretty electric scene there at 18 yeah, to greet you. Tiger, I, I know it was a long week, tons of recovery, but what are going to be your main takeaways? You know, it was a, it was a huge week for us as a foundation um, to have all the top players here playing this event uh, and obviously understanding what this season means for our, 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 our tour going forward and they all came collectively to play and uh, I was lucky enough to have been a part of that. Um, I enjoyed being able to go out there and compete with the guys again. I, I, I miss the fraternity. Uh, I miss being out there and, and competing. And uh, unfortunately, I wasn't quite as 
as good as the top guys, you know, right now. But uh, the, the, the two best ball strikers this year are right now at the top of the board. And uh, that's what this golf course is. This, uh, this golf course rewards great ball striking. And uh, to see, you know, Max and John up there battling is not, not really a surprise. I know as a professional golfer, you're going to critique yourself and the performance that you see. But what are you proud of from this week in your golf performance? Well, I'm, I'm proud of the fact that I, I hit the ball like I did at home. You know, I've, I've, I've been hitting it like this at home. And, uh, but it's, it's different come tournament time. It's the adrenaline. It's trying to get the feels of numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, if you miss a shot one, one day here and there, or, you know, you just drop another ball and hit it, uh, it's a little different being able to have to uh, put a number on a scorecard. Uh, it's, it's just different. And, uh, yeah, you know, I miss being able to, to go out there and, and grind it. But I mm-hmm. saw I loved it. You mentioned the impact that this week has for your foundation. We've seen students as mm. starters, and we've gotten to see them back here at the media. Just describe how important this week with the Genesis Invitational is to your foundation. Well, without without the sponsors here, uh, without Genesis and the, the even the, the entire local community, um, we wouldn't have this, the advancements that we've had or the success rate we've had with our foundation. So. Um, Everyone here at RIV, all, all the people that came out and watched the event and have supported, uh, you know, over the years, I think they have got a better understanding of what we do as a, as, as a foundation and how much of an impact we're having on, on kids' lives. And uh, this event is we're able to showcase that. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that some of the players have started foundations of their own because of what we've done. Um, so I, I'm, I'm very proud of that. I'm very proud of... Uh, all the kids that have been a part of it and be able to, like, like Sammy, when he announced me, he's, he's, you know, he's my little mentee. And uh, to, see his, to see him progress uh, from a little seventh, sixth, seventh grader to now, um, you know, graduated Stanford and you know, going after his master's, it, it's just neat to see that. Well, certainly a lot to be proud of. One last question for the week. You alluded earlier in your press conference that the next time we see you might be Augusta. Mm-hmm. Is there a world in which we see you competitively out here before that? You know, I, d- I don't know, Kira. You know, that, that's the thing. You know, I, I'm, I'm only going to play. You know, I said that last year. I'm only going to play in the majors and maybe a few more. Um, it's all my body will allow me to do anymore um, my, with my back and the way my leg is. And I, I just can't. Um, as much as I would like to play more and um, or people want me to play more, uh, I, I just I just won't be able to do that anymore. So that's that's my reality. So um, last year I wanted to play all four. Um, I got three of the four in. Um, hopefully this year I, I can make it a four for four. Well, we hope to see you soon. Thank you for the time. Yeah, thanks, Kira. Tiger's recent results since returning to competitive golf following that horrific car crash that was on the heels of the Genesis Invitational a couple of years ago. Tigers made the cut three out of four times. Only missed cut was at the Open, but remember he had a WD at the PGA Championship at Southern Hills going into the final round. Finished 47th at the Masters, T45 this week at the Genesis Invitational. Reasonable expectations for what we're seeing out of Tiger Woods at this stage of his career. The expectations I suspect fans had going into this week at Riviera versus what Tiger had are often very different. I think most fans just wanted to see signs that he was healthy, that he wasn't lame uh, at the end of round, that he wasn't struggling to just physically complete the act uh, of finishing a round of golf. So it was a win in that respect. Beyond that, I think fans wanted to see some signs of health 
from his game. You could argue they saw that as well. There were certainly periods of sharpness in there. You know, a, a goal would have been to see Tiger make the cut to play all four rounds. He did that as well. But Tiger was quite explicit in his press conference on Tuesday, George, that he doesn't want to be a ceremonial golfer, that he's not showing up if he doesn't think he can win. They all say that. They all hang around for much longer than they actually do. But I don't know that he's that far off. I mean, his statistical profile for the week showed a lot of results that were solid but unspectacular. It's what you'd pretty much expect for a guy who's played as little golf as he has over the last couple of years. His best ranking in any of the major statistical categories was 24th in strokes gained approach. None of them were particularly terrible. None were impressive given where he was coming from and how little we've seen of him for so long. To me, the telling statement was he said that he was happiest that he was hitting the ball at Riviera the way he was at home. And to me, that suggests that the work that he's doing is starting to take root. Yeah, no, ESPN Plus, I was calling Tiger's marquee group, so saw him Thursday, Friday, and Sunday, 54 of the 72 holes. I thought what Tiger shared with Kira K. Dixon encapsulates what Tiger is facing now, where he said, I can play the majors and maybe a few more. If you look at the last time Tiger played more than 15 events, basically what designates a season on the PGA Tour, that was 2017-18. That comeback which was back issue related. I remember having debates with colleagues, and I thought he would win number 80. I thought he'd win another major then when we saw him return and the club head speed that he had and the fact that he played a fairly full schedule then. Now it's such a, a narrow window in which Tiger plays competitively, and if you look at the gap between where Tiger is and where the leaders have been in the events he's played, it really crystallizes the deficit. The Masters, he was 23 shots behind Scotty Scheffler. At the PGA Championship, 21 back, the Open 22 back. I guess a little improvement, he was 16 shots back of John Rahm. That is a lot of ground to make up for Tiger Woods. The question that I asked him at the BMW Championship back in 2020, how do you balance the need for rest with reps? Can his body physically withstand what he needs to do from a technical standpoint to elevate his game, or is he incapable of doing that, and is this the new normal? Tiger would know much better than us, but the small sample size we have, there's a large gulf that he still needs to navigate for him to seriously contend in a PGA Tour event because what we saw Saturday made you believe. But I don't believe that he can do that for two, three, or four, four rounds as much as we would love to see that. Well, it's also context, I suppose, is pretty important here, given where, where those results were last year and that the fact that he was coming back from almost losing his right leg in that car crash. I, I think we're, it's tough to get a real measure of what Tiger's capacity is. We know the skill is there. We know the mind is there. I mean, he won that Masters in 2019 because all the best players in the world around him all wobbled on the back nine and he was not the guy who wobbled. So he does have the mindset and the skill set to win. But the rust versus reps argument is key here because clearly he's rusty. He said that repeatedly after every round that he felt rusty. When is he not going to be rusty? Because he's clearly said in just in that interview with Kira K. Dixon that he's going to play the majors and a few others. It's hard not to be rusty if that's your tournament schedule. The question is, when are we going to see Tiger? Are we going to see him again before Augusta? There are probably only two events where that's even a remote consideration. Perhaps the Arnold Palmer invitation next week where he's so much institutional knowledge of the golf course, it's pretty flat, not a tough walk. 
you same you, you could say at the Players' Championship the following week at Sawgrass. That's probably he didn't give any indication that he was going to play either of those. It's hard to imagine you're going to see him show up at any other event in the next seven weeks before Augusta if it's not one of those two. So again, the rust issue is the conversation at Augusta, and that in a way diminishes the skill set because you can't beat a John Ram or a Rory McIlroy if you're rusty. A hundred percent. And when Tiger says a few on top of the majors and he's already played at Riviera, that makes you think maybe two more through the end of the season or into the fall. It would be hard to envision a Tiger stop at the Florida Swing, but we would love to be wrong with that. That would be a very pleasant surprise. So when golf today continues, Lydia Ko proving that she is the hottest player in the women's game with another victory in Saudi Arabia Golf Week's Beth Ann Nichols is going to join us to tell us what's next for the world number one. Stay tuned. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Over the weekend, Lydia Ko once again returning to the winner's circle as the world number one held off Aditya Shuk to capture the biggest first place check on the Ladies European Tour at the Aramco Saudi International Co. Finishing with a final round of four under 68. And you look at the recent results and Lydia Ko has just been stacking win after win after win. That is now three wins her last four starts worldwide you see in that time only one finish outside of the top five her play has been spectacular it's like the Lydia Ko of old but your takeaway from the week that was with Lydia Ko over in Saudi Arabia well it's clear Lydia Ko is the best player in the world right now that's almost undisputed but the quality of Lydia Ko's play to me is less important than where she's playing and who she's choosing to play for and, you know, we saw a lot of controversy at the weekend with Tiger's juvenile stunt with the tampon in, um, at Riviera. And it led to a lot of criticism, rightly so. You know, it's an adolescent humour that most people have grown out of before they're a 47-year-old man. But if we're going to call out people for misogyny, if we're going to call out role models for enabling misogyny, then we ought to be consistent about it. And here we've got a case of Lydia Coe and Lexi Thompson, who also finished high on that leaderboard, choosing to normalize a regime that is renowned for its misogyny and brutality and they ought to be called out for the same criticism that is leveled in the men's game in terms of the ease with which they take 
Saudi money with no compunction about the, the moral baggage that goes along with it. Well, then why is there some inconsistency when it comes to members of the Ladies European Tour? It seemed like you had a softer stance versus what you're saying with Lydia Ko and Lexi Thompson, where you're saying it should be equitable to the blowback and pushback that the men have received for joining LIV or playing the Saudi International. Well, it's, it's a matter here of who has the power to make a decision. The Ladies European Tour we all know it runs on fumes. The 37 players on that tour made $100,000 last year. 37th on the LPGA's money list was good for $770,000. And what the, Alexander Armas, the CEO of the Ladies European Tour, has brought in a number of events sponsored by the Saudi oil company Aramco. Those dwarf the purses that are available in most LET events. So what the tour is in effect doing is saying that your members can either choose between having a conscience or having a career. If you're not willing to play for Saudi money, then you're not simply going to have a future on the LET. That doesn't apply to a Lydia Ko or Lexi Thompson. They've respectively made 17 and $14 million on the LPGA Tour. So they have the power to make a decision if they wish to do so, that was based on concern about where the money is coming from. It's clearly not a concern. But where you lose me is anyone on the ladies' European tour, it's not compulsory. They have the power to make the decision to play those events, play another tour. But why are you asking or, them to choose between a career and a conscience? It's not a they decision. Should, that's, that if, if morality is at the forefront, there shouldn't be a price tag attached to what your bank account, how many zeros you have. If you have $14 in your bank account and that's the moral standard that you feel is most important, then you figure out a way to move forward that doesn't permit you to go against your moral values. It should have nothing to do with what your bank account currently shows. Of course it should have nothing to do, but so the reality is, is that people are being forced here to choose. If, like Megan McLaren, for example, who has spoken out, against sports washing is very clearly said that if she wants to have a career and play professional golf, she has been left with no choice by she the could try and European play the, Tour. She could play the LPGA Tour. She has tried to play the LPGA Tour. There are tours tour. across... Not, there are tours across the world, but right. they're not exactly lucrative. There is one lucrative tour by the standards of women's golf. It's lucrative by the standards of other golf, and certainly men's golf. It's not particularly lucrative. But the idea that these women should just go get a job somewhere else because the CEO of the LET decides that they ought to play for Saudi money, I think is a little bit unreasonable. I, I don't think it's unreasonable whatsoever. Like, there are a ton of different opportunities and options that you can go through if morality is at the forefront. Well, morality is certainly not at the forefront for everybody, but it's certainly at the forefront for some. We're going to add another voice to this debate right now. We're going to welcome in my Golf Week colleague, senior writer there, <laughs> Beth Ann Nichols. Beth Ann, thanks for joining us. Let's, let's get to the Saudi issue here. Lydia Ko, Lexi Thompson and others played with basically no blowback in Saudi Arabia at the weekend for what is, by the standards of women's golf, a pretty enormous purse. Why was there no criticism, do you think? Well, I think it's what you alluded to earlier when you look at, you know, the amount of money that that the women play for compared to the men. I think Megan, I asked Megan McLaren this issue and she said, look, it really comes down to the fact that people aren't paying as much attention. She said, and you know, in our in our media rooms, we don't have 15 journalists, you know, asking tough questions, which which is true. <laughs> uh, you know, and so I think, you know, you you get you get some of those tough questions 
you know, I'd say the U.S. Women's Open, uh, but not when you're when you're on Saudi soil. And so, you know, and, and I have asked those questions and uh, and mostly get, uh, you know, grow the game response. That's what we're looking to do. That's what we're hopeful. Uh, of course, they're going to tout that the five million dollar purse that's equal to the men's purse in Saudi and that, that that's a big step forward and, and focusing on on the equal pay. And, uh, you know, it did really feel like this event almost went on with, with very, very little attention. Like it was, in, I realized it was on the other side of the world. You had to get up in the morning and stream it if you wanted to watch it in the United States. But, you know, you had 15 of the top 30 players in the world playing in it and, and very, very little buzz. And, and to your point about money, if you take the majors and the co-sanctioned events out of the LET schedule in terms of prize fund, What's left is more than 40% of the money that they're playing for is backed by Saudi, so Gulf Saudi. So it's really hard to take a moral stance and play on that tour and 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 make a living number one and try to keep your card number two. So so Megan McLaren's other option, you know, that hasn't been mentioned is she could go, of course, play the Epson tour to try to to earn her way onto the LPGA. She has obviously gone to Q series and has has not um you know been successful to play the full time on the LPGA thus far and still still working toward that. But it is it is a, a massive difference when you look at uh you know women looking to retire at say 30 as Lydia Ko has often said or or in their 30s and have enough money to to not have to have a second career that you know and and, and to be able to to start a family when they want to and and not worrying about you know trying to balance all of that these are the things that a lot of these athletes are weighing that that men aren't weighing when they're they're going to to play for for live live money so it is a very the the morality is the same no question Financially, the opportunities that are available are, are very different and, and, and co quite complex, to be honest. And do you think that's why the public perception and messaging has been fairly incongruent with the men's game and the women's game? Yeah, because I don't think you're seeing a sense of greed. I think that's what most people aren't seeing from these players. Uh, you know, certainly not LET players by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, it's a little bit different for Lydia Ko or Lexi Thompson. Lexi isn't going to play in the next two events in Asia on the LPGA schedule. So, you know, the first event that she could play on the LPGA, it's looking like will be the end of March. Uh, she did say that she had a bridal shower to attend coming up, but uh, but you know, I mean that that's that's Lexi's decision, and and you know the money is a little bit different for a player like Lexi, but I do think that it comes down to a matter of greed. But you know, I do think there are people that hold the women to the same standard as you're saying from from a moral standpoint. Perhaps maybe it's even worse that it's a woman, you know, going over and playing on Saudi soil, given the treatment that that women have. Uh, in the kingdom. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's extremely tough. And I think a lot of players maybe don't want to delve into it and think too long and hard about it because the more they know, uh, the, the harder it might be to get on that plane, to take that money. Nathan, let's talk about this schedule. You mentioned Lexi skipping these events in Asia. There were planned to be three events in Asia until the Chinese government canceled one of them. So now there are stops in Thailand, Singapore. The LPGA tour has been off for a while. It's a month before it's going to land back in the United States again, and then it's only a three-week play-in to the first major championship. So, you know, you've got all these great PGA Tour storylines going on every week. The LPGA mm -hmm. kind of feels dormant by comparison. Is that schedule something that really needs to be adjusted for next year? 
Oh, it's it's absolutely brutal for for everyone. I think for for fans, <laughs> for players who you know. Let's let's say you earned your your LPGA card through the Epson Tour last October. You don't get to play in a full field event until that last week of March there, which is which is really tough. You might be going to get a second job, working at a golf course, doing something to help get a little income coming in because there's not a robust mini tour schedule for these players to compete in. But you know, Brooke Henderson with a was a fantastic winner to start the season at the tournament of champions and then a full month off as i said i didn't feel like there was a lot of buzz around the saudi event i think some fans choose not to pay attention don't want to pay attention at all to what's going on in in saudi arabia and so you know that's even even less buzz because i think a lot of your hardcore fans do tune out uh and then after the asian swing you have another full two weeks off so uh, the lpga right now has zero momentum Kind of tough to maintain a schedule whenever you're actually stop-start like this, especially when you're, the first major championship is closing in pretty fast when they do come back here. Uh, yeah, the, the early part of the season has been, to Beth Ann's point, very difficult to generate a lot of headlines, especially with the different time zones that they're now going to be traveling to. Beth Ann, appreciate the insight as always. Still to come, history was made on the PGA Tour Champions and the Chubb Classic as Bernhard Langer. Snagging number 45 to tile Hale Irwin's tour record. You're going to hear from Langer next on what the accomplishment means to him. You know, Bernhard Langer had the Chubb Classic circled on his schedule. Won there last year for number 44. Bernhard Langer gets win number 45, tile tying Hale Irwin for the most ever on the PGA Tour Champions after the W. He chatted with Cara Banks on Golf Central last evening. Is setting your own all-time mark where your mind now turns? And given that some courses, as you have admitted, suit your game better than others, what event would you circle where that could be the likeliest possibility? Yeah, you, you never know if there's, you know, I can still compete on most courses if I play well, but there's a couple where uh, the Bombers have a, a, huge a huge advantage. So right now, I'm just going to enjoy this victory and celebrate with my family and, and my friends. Uh, have an next week off, so it's, it's great to be home and, um, you know, celebrate it with friends. Enjoy the moment and then we focus on future tournaments. Very last question, Bernhard. Tell us, at the age of 65, shooting, or I should say, beating your age earlier this week with that opening round of 64, what is the secret to maintaining your competitive drive? Yeah, I'm not sure there's a, a secret, but it was very special to break my age on Friday and then shoot my age today twice uh, in three days. Uh, that's pretty cool. I haven't done that before, so now I've, I've done it, uh, I think, eight times my age or better. And hopefully there'll be many more. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of things uh, to play good golf. You need a good uh, family around you. You have uh, you got to have a good coach, uh, definitely a good caddy. And uh, the drive to just improve and get better and, and work at it. The most PGA Tour champions wins all time. Bernhard Langer, 44, coming into the season. Now has tied Hale Irwin with 45. Lee Trevino had 29. It seems like it's just a matter of time until Langer sets the new gold standard on the PGA Tour champions. Well, Bernhard Langer was the first man to top the official world golf ranking back in 1986. 
This is the latest. John Ram back at the pinnacle after his win at Riviera. When we come back, we'll talk about Ram's ascent and whether the PGA Tour's new designated events are delivering what they promised. Stay with us. Meaningful it was to Max Homa to win the Genesis Invitational two years ago, but that was COVID restricted. The, the friends and, and fans that weren't on site at Riviera was hoping to do it in front of them. An emotional Homa on coming up just short. It hurts me not to, when I won in 21, there, nobody was here, you know, and it hurts me not to be able to do that with everyone here, my family and friends. But, um, I tried, man. Sorry, this tournament just means a lot to me, so. It's like an emotional release. Um, but yeah, the, the support I get here is so cool. So, I, I'm gonna win it again. Uh, and be able to do it in front of all these people, so. Yeah, that's that. Nice to see how, how raw and vulnerable Max was after the Genesis Invitational Suite. Sometimes you win, unfortunately, sometimes you lose, but I'll never accept giving up. And today I'll say that I'm proud of the fight. We will be back and we will be ready. Thank you to the city of LA and everyone else for the support. I love you guys. LA for life. Well, that's the emotion you don't see when only money is at stake. Coming up, we're gonna dig in on a major court decision that came late last week that could have a significant impact on the future of Live Golf. Our legal analyst, Jody Balsam, will be here next to break it all down. This week, Live Golf begins its 14th event season at Mayacoba in Mexico, but the league's antitrust lawsuit against the PGA Tour continues to play out in court. Last week, the Northern District in California granted a PGA Tour request to have the Saudi Public Investment Fund and its governor, Yasser al-Rumian, be subject to discovery, meaning producing documents and sitting for interviews, which is something they have resisted. Here to break it all down for us, is our legal analyst, Professor Jody Balsam, an expert in sports law at Brooklyn Law School. Jody, what is it about this discovery process that, that the Saudi Investment Fund has fought against so rigorously over the last few months? What is it about that process they find so inviting, uninviting, do you think? Well, the Saudi Arabian state is a far more secretive and closed society. Uh, they do not litigate with the openness and permissive discovery uh, that we have in the United States. They don't have a free press. They don't have uh, public access to information. So the idea of submitting to the U.S. court's permissive discovery is anathema culturally. And specifically in this lawsuit, uh, we may unearth facts that would implicate the Saudis more deeply in the claim that the PGA Tour has launched against Live Golf, which is that they have tortiously interfered with the contracts that the PGA Tour had with its players. Would you expect the, the Saudis will appeal against this Northern District ruling? And if they do, what are the chances of actually winning that appeal? So the um, way that the discovery ruling came about is that the presiding judge in the case, Judge Beth Lapson Freeman, had delegated the oversight of the discovery process to a magistrate judge, Judge Susan Van Kulen. It is her ruling, Judge Van Kulen's ruling, that has compelled, that now compels the Saudis to participate as a non-party in this discovery process, provide documents, 
uh, provide uh, Mr. Oliver Mayan for a deposition. Um, in the U.S. federal courts, when a magistrate judge issues a discovery ruling like this, the affected parties uh, have the right to seek reconsideration in front of the presiding judge, Judge Beth Lapson Freeman. That is what the Saudi uh, um, entities have uh, announced that they will do. They will seek reconsideration. They will object to the order in front of Judge Beth Lapson Freeman. That judge is very unlikely to undo the order. Magistrate judge discovery rulings are pretty much rubber stamped by the presiding judges in the case. And there's no reason why this one should be treated any differently, given how well-reasoned and laid out Judge Van Kulen's 58-page ruling was. Um, if Judge Lapson Freeman uh, endorses the magistrate judge's ruling to compel Saudi discovery, the Saudis have one further appellate option. They could seek an interlocutory appeal to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Again, very rarely granted, very unlikely to succeed in this case. So what other recourse would they potentially have going forward? Well, um, they, they have three options uh, once this ruling is confirmed, uh, and it, I suspect it will be. One, they could comply, and we predict that's unlikely, given their resistance to ever participating in discovery in the U.S. courts. And I will point out that right across the hall in the same courthouse, the Saudis have refused to uh, comply with a subpoena to testify in the fraud trial proceeding against Tesla and Elon Musk, that the Saudis were subpoenaed to give trial testimony in that case in the last couple of weeks and refused to comply. I see no reason to expect them to comply here. So what if they don't comply? And if they lose any uh, request for reconsideration um, and they defy the court's order, well, then they could potentially be held in contempt of court. Uh, for a non-party, the consequences are that they could be fined, uh, they could be subject to an order to pay the PGA Tours attorney's fees related to the motion to compel, and there is a possibility that the PGA Tour could succeed in having a court or jury draw negative inferences against Live Golf, damaging their antitrust case and their tortious interference defense uh, when it comes to trial. Um, it'd be much uh, more, there'd be much more serious consequences if the Saudis become a party to the lawsuit. Uh, then, if they refuse to comply with the discovery order, a potential consequence is dismissal of certain aspects of the lawsuit. Is there a chance that their refusal to comply, Jody, would lead to the dismissal, with or without prejudice, of the Live Antitrust lawsuit? And then there's this other action, the PGA Tour's countersuit against Live, alleging that they have interfered with player contracts. They are seeking to have the Saudis joined as co-defendants in that. What? If all of this plays out where the Saudis refuse to submit to the jurisdiction of the United States courts, whose protection they're actually seeking, what's the long-term impact, do you think, in, on the prospects of Live Golf succeeding in any of its legal action? Um, they're slim, frankly, if, especially if the Saudis become a party to the suit, meaning that the PGA Tour succeeds in its current pending motion to add the Saudis as defendants in their counterclaim for tortious interference with contract. So if the Saudis become a party, the consequences for defiance of a court order 
to participate in discovery are far more serious, and they could result in uh, dismissal of the lawsuit with prejudice, uh, negative inferences, um, or factual stipulations made in the PGA Tour's favor, uh, all of which would undermine, undercut the viability of the entire live golf, um, golf litigation strategy. Uh, and how that will affect their longer-term business strategy is um, something you might want to opine on. Jody, thanks for distilling all that information for us as golf's biggest battle is happening outside the ropes and inside a courtroom right now. Good to talk with you.